Dead Souls, Part One, Chapter Eleven, Section Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, translated by D. J. Hogarth, Part One, Chapter Eleven, Section Two, read by Anna Simon. But suddenly there appeared upon the scene a new director a military man, and a martinet as regarded his hostility to bribe-takers and anything which might be called irregular. On the very day after his arrival he struck fear into every breast by calling for accounts, discovering hosts of deficits and missing sums, and directing his attention to the aforesaid fine houses of civilian architecture. Upon that there ensued a complete reshuffling. Chinovniks were retired wholesale, and the houses were sequestrated to the government, or else converted into various pious institutions and schools for soldiers' children. Thus the whole fabric, and especially Chichikov, came crashing to the ground. Particularly did our hero's agreeable face displease the new director. Why that was so, it is impossible to say, but frequently, in cases of the kind, no reason exists. However, the director conceived a mortal dislike to him, and also extended that enmity to the whole of Chichikov's colleagues but inasmuch as the said director was a military man, he was not fully acquainted with the myriad subtleties of the civilian mind. Wherefore it was not long before, by dint of maintaining a discreet exterior, added to a faculty for humouring all and sundry, a fresh gang of chinovniks succeeded in restoring him to mildness, and the general found himself in the hands of greater thieves than before, but thieves whom he did not even suspect, seeing that he believed himself to have selected men fit and proper, had even ventured to boast of possessing a keen eye for talent. In a trice, the chinovniks concerned appraised his spirit and character, with the result that the entire sphere over which he ruled became an agency for the detection of irregularities. Everywhere, and in every case, were those irregularities pursued as a fisherman pursues a fat sturgeon with a gaff, and to such an extent did the sport prove successful that almost in no time each participator in the hunt was seen to be in possession of several thousand roubles of capital. Upon that, a large number of the former band of chinovniks also became converted to paths of rectitude, and were allowed to re-enter the service. But not by hook or by crook could Chichikov worm his way back, even though, incited thereto by sundry items of paper currency, the general's first secretary and principal bear-leader did all he could on our hero's behalf. It seemed that the general was the kind of man who, though easily led by the news, provided it was done without his knowledge, no sooner got an idea into his head than it stuck there like a nail, and could not possibly be extracted. And all that the wily secretary succeeded in procuring was a tearing up of a certain dirty fragment of paper, even that being effected only by an appeal to the general's compassion, on the score of the unhappy fate which, otherwise, would befall Chichikov's wife and children who, luckily, had no existence in fact. "'Well,' said Chichikov to himself, "'I have done my best, and now everything has failed. Lamenting my misfortune won't help me, but only action.' And with that he decided to begin his career anew, and once more to arm himself with the weapons of patience and self-denial. The better to effect this, he had, of course, to remove to another town. Yet somehow, for a while, things miscarried. More than once he found himself forced to exchange one post for another, and at the briefest of notice, and all of them were posts of the meanest, the most wretched order. Yet, being a man of the utmost nicety of feeling, the fact that he found himself rubbing shoulders with anything but nice companions did not prevent him from preserving intact his innate love of what was decent and seemly, 
or from cherishing the instinct which led him to hanker after office fittings of lacquered wood, with neatness and orderliness everywhere. Nor did he at any time permit a foul word to creep into his speech, and would feel hurt even if in the speech of others there occurred a scornful reverence to anything which pertained to rank and dignity. Also, the reader will be pleased to know that our hero changed his linen every other day, and in summer, when the weather was very hot, every day, seeing that the very faintest suspicion of an unpleasant odour offended his fastidiousness. For the same reason it was his custom, before being valeted by Petruska, always to plug his nostrils with a couple of cloves. In short, there were many occasions when his nerves suffered rackings as cruel as a young girl's, and so helped to increase his disgust at having once more to associate with men who set no store by the decencies of life. Yet, though he braced himself to the task, this period of adversity told upon his health, and he even grew a trifle shabby. More than once, on happening to catch sight of himself in the mirror, he could not forbear exclaiming, "'Holy Mother of God! But what a nasty-looking brood I have become!' And for a long while afterwards could not with anything like sang-froid contemplate his reflection." Yet throughout he bore up stoutly and patiently, and ended by being transferred to the customs department. It may be said that the department had long constituted the secret goal of his ambition, for he had noted the foreign elegancies with which its officials always contrived to provide themselves, and had always observed that invariably they were able to send presents of China and Cambric to their sisters and aunts, well, to their lady friends generally. Yes, more than once he had said to himself with a sigh, that is the department to which I ought to belong, for, given a town near the frontier and a sensible set of colleagues, I might be able to fit myself out with excellent linen shirts. Also, it may be said that most frequently of all had his thoughts turned towards a certain quality of French soap, which imparted a peculiar whiteness to the skin, and a peerless freshness to the cheeks. Its name is known to God alone, but at least it was to be procured only in the immediate neighbourhood of the frontier. So, as I say, Chichikov had long felt a leaning towards the customs, but for a time had been restrained from applying for the same by the various current advantages of the building commission, since rightly it had judged the latter to constitute a bird in the hand, and the former to constitute only a bird in the bush. But now he decided that, come what might, into the customs he must make his way. And that way he made and then applied himself to his new duties with a zeal born of the fact that he realized that fortune had especially marked him out for a customs officer. Indeed, such activity, perspicuity, and ubiquity as his had never been seen or thought of. Within four weeks at the most he had so thoroughly got his hand in that he was conversant with customs procedure in every detail. Not only could he weigh and measure, but also he could divine from an invoice how many arshins of cloth or other material a given piece contained, and then, taking a roll of the letter in his hand, could specify at once the number of pounds at which it would tip the scale. As for searchings, well, even his colleagues had to admit that he possessed the nose of a veritable bloodhound, and that it was impossible not to marvel at the patience wherewith he would try every button of the suspected person." yet preserved throughout a deadly politeness and an icy sang-froid which surpassed belief. And while the search were raging and foaming at the mouth, and feeling that they would give worlds to alter his smiling exterior with a good, resounding slap, he would move not a muscle of his face, nor abate by a jot the urbanity of his demeanour, as he murmured, "'Do you mind so far incommoding yourself as to stand up?' or, "'Pray step into the next room, madam, where the wife of one of our staff will attend you.' or, 
pray allow me to slip this penknife of mine into the lining of your coat after which he would extract thence shawls and towels with as much nonchalance as he would have done from his own travelling trunk even his superiors acknowledged him to be a devil at the job rather than a human being so perfect was his instinct for looking into cartwheels carriage poles horses ears and places whither an author ought not to penetrate even in thought places whither only a customs official is permitted to go the result was that the wretched traveller who had just crossed the frontier would within a few minutes become wholly at sea and wiping away the perspiration and breaking out into body flushes would be reduced to crossing himself and muttering well 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 in fact such a traveller would feel in the position of a schoolboy who having been summoned to the presence of the headmaster for the ostensible purpose of being given an order has found that he receives instead a sound flogging in short for some time chichikov made it impossible for smugglers to earn a living in particular he reduced polish jewry almost to despair so invincible so almost unnatural was the rectitude the incorruptibility which led him to refrain from converting himself into a small capitalist with the aid of confiscated goods and articles which to save excessive clerical labour had failed to be handed over to the government also without saying it goes that such phenomenally zealous and disinterested service attracted general astonishment and eventually the notice of the authorities whereupon he received promotion and followed that up by mooting a scheme for the infallible detection of contrabandists provided that he could be furnished with the necessary authority for carrying out the same at once such authority was accorded him as also unlimited power to conduct every species of search and investigation and that was all he wanted it happened that previously there had been formed a well-found association for smuggling on regular carefully prepared lines and that this daring scheme seemed to promise profit to the extent of some millions of money yet though he had long had knowledge of it chichikov had said to the association's emissaries when sent to buy him over the time is not yet but now that he had got all the reins into his hands he sent word of the fact to the gang and with it the remark the time is now nor was he wrong in his calculations for within the space of a year he had acquired what he could not have made during twenty years of non-fraudulent service with similar sagacity he had during his early days in the department declined altogether to enter into relations with the association for the reason that he had then been a mere cipher and would have come in for nothing large in the way of takings but now well now it was another matter altogether and he could dictate what terms he liked moreover that the affair might progress the more smoothly he suborned a fellow chinovnik of the type which in spite of grey hairs stands powerless against temptation and the contract concluded the association duly proceeded to business certainly business began brilliantly but probably most of my readers are familiar with the oft-repeated story of the passage of spanish sheep across the frontier in double fleeces which carried between their outer layers and their inner enough lace of brabant to sell to the tune of millions of roubles wherefore i will not recount the story again beyond saying that those journeys took place just when chichikov had become head of the customs and that had he not a hand in the enterprise not all the jews in the world could have brought it to success by the time that three or four of these ovine invasions had taken place chichikov and his accomplice had come to be the possessors of four hundred thousand roubles apiece while some even aver that the former's gains totaled half a million, owing to the greater industry which he had displayed in the matter. Nor can anyone but God say to what a figure the fortunes of the pair might not eventually have attained 
had not an awkward contretemps cut right across their arrangements. That is to say, for some reason or another, the devil so far deprived these Chinovnik's conspirators of sense as to make them come to words with one another, and then to engage in a quarrel. Beginning with a heated argument, this quarrel reached the point of Chichikov, who was possibly a trifle tipsy, calling his colleague a priest's son, and though that description of the person so addressed was perfectly accurate, he chose to take offence, and to answer Chichikov with the words, loudly and incisively uttered, "'It is you who have a priest for your father,' and to add to that, the more to incense his companion, "'Yes, mark you, that is how it is.' Yet, though he had thus turned the tables upon Chichikov with a two quoque, and then capped that exploit with the words last quoted, the offended Chinovnik could not remain satisfied, but went on to send in an anonymous document to the authorities. On the other hand, some aver that it was over a woman that the pair fell out, over a woman who, to quote the phrase then current among the staff of the customs department, was as fresh and as strong as the pulp of a turnip, and that night-birds were hired to assault our hero in a dark alley, and that the scheme miscarried, and that in any case both Chichikov and his friend had been deceived, seeing that the person to whom the lady had really accorded her favours was a certain staff-captain named Shamsharev. However, only God knows the truth of the matter. Let the inquisitive reader ferret it out for himself. The fact remains that a complete exposure of the dealings with the contrabandists followed, and that the two chinovniks were put to the question, deprived of their property, and made to formulate in writing all that they had done. Against this thunderbolt of fortune the state councillor could make no headway, and in some retired spot or another sank into oblivion. But Chichikov put a brave face upon the matter, for, in spite of the authorities' best efforts to smell out his gains, he had contrived to conceal a portion of them, and also resorted to every subtle trick of intellect which could possibly be employed by an experienced man of the world who has a wide knowledge of his fellows. Nothing which could be affected by pleasantness of demeanour, by moving oratory, by clouds of flattery, and by the occasional insertion of a coin into a palm, did he leave undone, with the result that he was retired with less ignominy than was his companion, and escaped actual trial on a criminal charge. Yet he was stripped of all his capital, stripped of his imported effects, stripped of everything. That is to say, all that remained to him consisted of ten thousand roubles which he had stored against the rainy day, two dozen linen shirts, a small britchka of the type used by bachelors, and two serving-men named Selifan and Petrushka. Yes, and that impulse of kindness moved the chinovniks of the customs also to set aside for him a few cakes of the soap which he had found so excellent for the freshness of the cheeks. Thus, once more, our hero found himself stranded, and what an accumulation of misfortunes had descended upon his head, though, true, he turned them, suffering in the service in the cause of truth. Certainly, one would have thought that, after these buffetings and trials and changes of fortune, after this taste of the sorrows of life, he and his precious ten thousand roubles would have withdrawn to some peaceful corner in a provincial town, where, clad in a stuffed dressing-gown, he could have sat and listened to the peasants quarrelling on festival days, or, for the sake of a breath of fresh air, have gone in person to the poulterers to finger chickens for soup, and so have spent a quiet but not wholly useless existence. But nothing of the kind took place, and therein we must do justice to the strength of his character." In other words, although he had undergone what, to the majority of men, would have meant ruin and discouragement and a shattering of ideals, he still preserved his energy. True, downcast and angry, and full of resentment against the world in general, he felt furious with the injustice of fate, 
and dissatisfied with the dealings of men. Yet he could not forbear courting additional experiences. In short, the patience which he displayed was such as to make the wooden persistency of the German, a persistency merely due to the slow, lethargic circulation of the Teuton's blood, seem nothing at all, seeing that by nature Chichikov's blood flowed strongly, and that he had to employ much force of will to curb within himself those elements which longed to burst forth and revel in freedom. He thought things over, and, as he did so, a certain spice of reason appeared in his reflections. "'How have I come to be what I am?' he said to himself. "'Why has misfortune overtaken me in this way? Never have I wronged a poor person, or robbed a widow, or turned anyone out of doors.' I have always been careful only to take advantage of those who possess more than their share. Moreover, I have never gleaned anywhere but where everyone else was gleaning, and, had I not done so, others would have gleaned in my place. Why, then, should those others be prospering, and I be sunk as low as a worm? What am I? What am I good for? How can I, in future, hope to look any honest father of a family in the face? How shall I escape being tortured with the thought that I am cumbering the ground? What, in the years to come, will my children say, save that our father was a brute, for he left us nothing to live upon? Here I may remark that we have seen how much thought Chichikov devoted to his future descendants. Indeed, had not there been constantly recurring to his mind the insistent question, What will my children say? He might not have plunged into the affair so deeply. Nevertheless, like a wary cat which glances hither and thither to see whether its mistress be not coming before it can make off with whatsoever first falls to its paw, butter, fat, lard, a duck, or anything else, so our future founder of a family continued, though weeping and bewailing his lot, to let not a single detail escape his eye. That is to say, he retained his wits ever in a state of activity, and kept his brain constantly working. All that he required was a plan— once more he pulled himself together, once more he embarked upon a life of toil, once more he stinted himself in everything, once more he left clean and decent surroundings for a dirty, mean existence. In other words, until something better should turn up, he embraced the calling of an ordinary attorney, a calling which, not then possessed of a civic status, was jostled on every side, enjoyed little respect at the hands of the minor legal fry, or indeed at its own and perforce met with universal slights and rudeness. But sheer necessity compelled Chichikov to face these things. Among commissions entrusted to him was that of placing in the hands of the public trustee several hundred peasants who belonged to a ruined estate. The estate had reached its parlous condition through cattle disease, through rascally bailiffs, through failures of the harvest, through such epidemic diseases that had killed off the best workmen and last but not least through the senseless conduct of the owner himself, who had furnished a house in Moscow in the latest style, and then squandered his every kopeck, so that nothing was left for his further maintenance, and it became necessary to mortgage the remains, including the peasants, of the estate. In those days mortgage to the treasury was an innovation looked upon with reserve, and, as attorney in the matter, Chichikov had first of all to entertain every official concerned. We know that, unless that be previously done, unless a whole bottle of Madeira first be emptied down each clerical throat, not the smallest legal affair can be carried through. And to explain, for the barring of future attachments, that half of the peasants were dead. "'And are they entered on the revision lists?' asked the secretary. "'Yes,' replied Chichikov. "'Then what are you boggling at?' continued the secretary. 
should one soul die another will be born and in time grow up to take the first one's place upon that there dawned on our hero one of the most inspired ideas which ever entered the human brain what a simpleton i am he thought to himself here am i looking about for my mittens when all the time i have got them tucked into my belt why were i myself to buy up a few souls which are dead to buy them before a new revision list shall have been made the council of public trust might pay me two hundred roubles apiece for them and i might find myself with say a capital of two hundred thousand roubles the present moment is particularly propitious since in various parts of the country there has been an epidemic and glory be to god a large number of souls have died of it nowadays landowners have taken to card-playing and junketing and wasting their money or to joining the civil service in st petersburg consequently their estates are going to wreck and ruin and being managed in any sort of fashion and succeeding in paying their dues with greater difficulty each year that being so not a man of the lot but would gladly surrender to me his dead souls rather than continue paying the poll tax and in this fashion i might make well not a few kopecks of course there are difficulties and to avoid creating a scandal i should need to employ plenty of finesse but man was given his brain to use not to neglect one good point about the scheme is that it will seem so improbable that in case of an accident no one in the world will believe in it true it is illegal to buy or mortgage peasants without land but i can easily pretend to be buying them only for transferment elsewhere land is to be acquired in the provinces of taurida and kherson almost for nothing provided that one undertakes subsequently to colonize it so to kherson i will transfer them and long may they live there and the removal of my dead souls shall be carried out in the strictest legal form and if the authorities should want confirmation by testimony i shall produce a letter signed by my own superintendent of the khersonian rural police that is to say by myself lastly the supposed village in kherson shall be called chichigova better still pavloskova according to my christian name in this fashion there germinated in our hero's brain that strange scheme for which the reader may or may not be grateful but for which the author certainly is so seeing that had it never occurred to chichikov this story would never have seen the light after crossing himself according to the russian custom chichikov set about carrying out his enterprise on pretence of selecting a place wherein to settle he started forth to inspect various corners of the russian empire but more especially those which had suffered from such unfortunate accidents as failures of the harvest a high rate of mortality or whatsoever else might enable him to purchase souls at the lowest possible rate but he did not tackle his landowners haphazard he rather selected such of them as seemed more particularly suited to his taste or with whom he might with the least possible trouble conclude identical agreements though in the first instance he always tried by getting on terms of acquaintanceship better still of friendship with them to acquire the souls for nothing and so to avoid purchase at all in passing my readers must not blame me if the characters whom they have encountered in these pages have not been altogether to their liking the fault is chichikov's rather than mine for he is the master and where he leads we must follow also should my readers gird at me for a certain dimness and want of clarity in my principal characters and actors that will be tantamount to saying that never do the broad tendency and the general scope of a work become immediately apparent similarly does the entry to every town the entry even to the capital itself convey to the traveller such an impression of vagueness that at first everything looks grey and monotonous 
and the lines of smoky factories and workshops seem never to be coming to an end. But in time there will begin also to stand out the outlines of six-storied mansions, and of shops and balconies, and wide perspectives of streets, and a medley of steeples, columns, statues and turrets, the whole framed in rattle and roar, and the infinite wonders which the hand and the brain of man have conceived. Of the manner in which Chichikov's first purchases were made, the reader is aware. Subsequently, he will see also how the affair progressed, and with what success or failure our hero met, and how Chichikov was called upon to decide and to overcome even more difficult problems than the foregoing, and by what colossal forces the levers of his far-flung tail are moved, and how eventually the horizon will become extended until everything assumes a grandiose and a lyrical tendency. Yes, many a verst of road remains to be travelled by a party made up of an elderly gentleman, a britchka of the kind affected by bachelors, a valet named Petrushka, a coachman named Selifan, and three horses, which, from the assessor to the skewbold, are known to us individually by name. Again, although I have given a full description of our hero's exterior, such as it is, I may yet be asked for an inclusive definition also of his moral personality. That he is no hero compounded of virtues and perfections must be already clear. Then what is he? A villain? Why should we call him a villain? Why should we be so hard upon a fellow man? In these days our villains have ceased to exist. Rather it would be fairer to call him an acquirer. The love of acquisition, the love of gain, is a fault common to many, and gives rise to many and many a transaction of the kind generally known as not strictly honourable. True, such a character contains an element of ugliness, and the same reader who, on his journey through life, would sit at the board of a character of this kind, and spend a most agreeable time with him, would be the first to look at him askance if he should appear in the guise of the hero of a novel or a play. But wise is the reader who, on meeting such a character, scans him carefully, and, instead of shrinking from him with distaste, probes him to the springs of his being. The human personality contains nothing which may not, in the twinkling of an eye, become altogether changed, nothing in which, before you can look around, there may not spring to birth some cankerous worm which is destined to suck thence the essential juice. Yes, it is a common thing to see not only an overmastering passion, but also a passion of the most petty order arise in a man who is born to better things, and lead him both to forget his greatest and most sacred obligations, and to see only in the various trifles the great and the holy. For human passions are as numberless as is the sand of the seashore, and go on to become his most insistent of masters. Happy, therefore, the man who may choose from among the gamut of human passions one which is noble. Hour by hour will that instinct grow and multiply in its measureless beneficence. Hour by hour will it sink deeper and deeper into the infinite paradise of his soul. But there are passions of which a man cannot rid himself, seeing that they are born with him at his birth, and he has no power to abjure them. Higher powers govern those passions, and in them is something which will call to him, and refuse to be silenced to the end of his life. Yes, whether in a guise of darkness, or whether in a guise which will become converted into a light to lighten the world, they will and must attain their consummation on life's field, and in either case they have been evoked for man's good. In the same way may the passion which drew our Chichikov onwards have been one that was independent of himself. In the same way may there have lurked even in his cold essence something which will one day cause men to humble themselves in the dust 
before the infinite wisdom of God. Yet that folk should be dissatisfied with my hero matters nothing. What matters is the fact that, under different circumstances, their approval could have been taken as a foregone conclusion. That is to say, had not the author pried over-deeply into Chichikov's soul, nor stirred up in his death what shunned and lay hidden from the light, nor disclosed those of his hero's thoughts which that hero would not have disclosed even to his most intimate friend. Had the author, indeed, exhibited Chichikov just as he exhibited himself to the townsmen of N. and Manilov and the rest, well, then we may rest assured that every reader would have been delighted with him, and have voted him a most interesting person. For it is not nearly so necessary that Chichikov should figure before the reader as though his form and person were actually present to the eye, as that, on concluding a perusal of this work, the reader should be able to return, unharrowed in soul, to that cult of the card-table which is the solace and delight of all good Russians. Yes, readers of this book, none of you really care to see humanity revealed in its nakedness. Why should we do so, you say? What would be the use of it? Do we not know for ourselves that human life contains much that is gross and contemptible? Do we not with our own eyes have to look upon much that is anything but comforting? Far better would it be if you would put before us what is comely and attractive, so that we might forget ourselves a little. In the same fashion does a landowner say to his bailiff, Why do you come and tell me that the affairs of my estate are in a bad way? I know that without your help. Have you nothing else to tell me? Kindly allow me to forget the fact, or else to remain in ignorance of it, and I shall be much obliged to you. Whereafter the said landowner probably proceeds to spend on his diversion the money which ought to have gone towards the rehabilitation of his affairs. Possibly the author may also incur censure at the hands of those so-called patriots who sit quietly in corners and become capitalists through making fortunes at the expense of others. Yes, let but something which they conceive to be derogatory to their country occur. For instance, let there be published some book which voices the bitter truth, and out they will come from their hiding-places like a spider which perceives a fly to be caught in its web. Is it well to proclaim this to the world, and to set folk talking about it? they will cry. What you have described such as us is our affair. Is conduct of that kind right? What will foreigners say? Does anyone care calmly to sit by and hear himself traduced? Why should you lead foreigners to suppose that all is not well with us, and that we are not patriotic? Well, to these sage remarks no answer can really be returned, especially to such of the above as refer to foreign opinion. But see here. There once lived in a remote corner of Russia two natives of the region indicated. One of those natives was a good man named Kifa Mokievich, and a man of kindly disposition, a man who went through life in a dressing-gown and paid no heed to his household, for the reason that his whole being was centred upon the province of speculation, and that, in particular, he was preoccupied with a philosophical problem usually stated by him thus. A beast, he would say, is born naked. Now why should that be? Why should not a beast be born as a bird is born, that is to say, through the process of being hatched from an egg? Nature is beyond the understanding, however much one may probe her. This was the substance of Kifa Mokievich's reflections. But herein is not the chief point. The other of the pair was a fellow named Morfi Kifovich, and son to the first named. He was what we Russians call a hero, and while his father was pondering the parturition of beasts, his, the son's, lusty twenty-year-old temperament was violently struggling for development. 
yet that son could tackle nothing without some accident occurring. At one moment would he crack someone's fingers in half, and at another would he raise a bump on somebody's nose, so that both at home and abroad every one and everything, from the serving-maid to the yard-dog, fled on his approach, and even the bed in his bedroom became shattered to splinters. Such was Mofi Kifovich, and with it all he had a kindly soul. But herein is not the chief point. Good sir, good Kifa Mokievich, servants and neighbours would come and say to the father, What are you going to do about your Mofi Kifovich? We get no rest from him, he is so above himself. That is only his play, that is only his play, the father would reply. What else can you expect? It is too late now to start a quarrel with him, and moreover, everyone would accuse me of harshness. True, he is a little conceited, but were I to reprove him in public, the whole thing would become common talk, and folk would begin giving him a dog's name. And if they did that, would not their opinion touch me also, seeing that I am his father? Also, I am busy with philosophy, and have no time for such things. Lastly, Mofi Kifovich is my son, and very dear to my heart. And, beating his breast, Kifa Mokievich again asserted that, even though his son should elect to continue his pranks, it would not be for him, for the father, to proclaim the fact, or to fall out with his offspring. And, this expression of paternal feeling uttered, Kifa Mokievich left Moki Kifovich to his heroic exploits, and himself returned to his beloved subject of speculation, which now included also the problem, suppose elephants were to take to being hatched from eggs, would not the shell of such eggs be of a thickness proof against cannonballs and necessitate the invention of some new type of firearm? Thus, at the end of this little story, we have these two denizens of a peaceful corner of Russia, looking thence, as from a window, in less terror of doing what was scandalous than of having it said of them that they were acting scandalously. Yes, the feeling animating our so-called patriots is not true patriotism at all. Something else lies beneath it. Who, if not an author, is to speak aloud the truth? Men like you, my pseudo-patriots, stand in dread of the eye which is able to discern, yet shrink from using your own, and prefer, rather, to glance at everything unheedingly. Yes, after laughing heartily over Chichikov's misadventures, and perhaps even commending the author for his dexterity of observation and pretty turn of wit, you will look at yourselves with redoubled pride and a self-satisfied smile, and add, well, we agree that in certain parts of the provinces there exist strange and ridiculous individuals, as well as unconscionable rascals. Yet which of you, when quiet and alone, and engaged in solitary self-communion, would not do well to probe your own souls, and to put to yourselves the solemn question, is there not in me an element of Chichikov? For how should there not be? Which of you is not liable at any moment to be passed in the street by an acquaintance who, nudging his neighbour, may say of you, with a barely suppressed sneer, Look, there goes Chichikov. That is Chichikov who has just gone by. But here we are talking at the top of our voices, whilst all the time our hero lies slumbering in his britchka. Indeed, his name has been repeated so often during the recital of his life's history that he must almost have heard us and at any time he is an irritable, irascible fellow when spoken of with disrespect. True, to the reader Chichikov's displeasure cannot matter a jot, but for the author it would mean ruin to quarrel with his hero, seeing that, arm in arm, Chichikov and he have yet far to go. "'Tut, tut, tut!' came in a shout from Chichikov. "'Hey, Selifan!' "'What is it?' came the reply, uttered with a drawl. "'What is it? 
Why, how dare you drive like that? Come, bestir yourself a little. And indeed, Selifan had long been sitting with half-closed eyes and hands which bestowed no encouragement upon his somnolent steeds, save an occasional flicking of the reins against their flanks, whilst Petrushka had lost his cap and was leaning backwards until his head had come to rest against Chichikov's knees, a position which necessitated his being awakened with a cuff. Selifan also aroused himself, and apportioned to the skewbold a few cuts across the back of a kind which at least had the effect of inciting that animal to trot. And when, presently, the other two horses followed their companion's example, the little britchka moved forwards like a piece of thistle-down. Selifan flourished his whip and shouted, "'Aye, aye!' as the inequalities of the road jerked him vertically on his seat. And meanwhile, reclining against the leather cushions of the vehicle's interior, Chichikov smiled with gratification at the sensation of driving fast. For what Russian does not love to drive fast? Which of us does not at times yearn to give his horses their head, and to let them go, and to cry, To the devil with the world! At such moments a great force seems to uplift one as on wings, and one flies, and everything else flies, but contrariwise. Both the first stones and traders riding on the shafts of their wagons and the forest with dark lines of spruce and fir amid which may be heard the axe of the woodcutter and the croaking of the raven. Yes, out of a dim, remote distance the road comes towards one, and while nothing save the sky and the light clouds through which the moon is cleaving her way seem halted, the brief glimpses wherein one can discern nothing clearly have in them a pervading touch of mystery. Ah, Troika, Troika, swift as a bird, who was it first invented you? Only among a hardy race of folk can you have come to birth, only in a land which, though poor and rough, lies spread over half the world, and spans versts, the counting whereof would leave one with aching eyes. Nor are you a modishly fashioned vehicle of the road, a thing of clamps and iron. Rather, you are a vehicle but shapen and fitted with the axe or chisel of some handy peasant of Jaroslav. Nor are you driven by a coachman clothed in German livery, but by a man bearded and mittened. See him as he mounts, and flourishes his whip, and breaks into a long-drawn song. Away like the wind go the horses, and the wheels with their spokes become transparent circles, and the road seems to quiver beneath them, and a pedestrian, with a cry of astonishment, halts to watch the vehicle as it flies, flies, flies on its way, until it becomes lost on the ultimate horizon, a speck amid a cloud of dust. And you... Russia of mine, are not you also speeding like a troika which naught can overtake? Is not the road smoking beneath your wheels, and the bridges thundering as you cross them, and everything being left in the rear, and the spectators struck with the portent, halting to wonder whether you be not a thunderbolt launched from heaven? What does that awe-inspiring progress of yours foretell? What is the unknown force which lies within your mysterious steeds? Surely the winds themselves must abide in their manes, and every vein in their bodies be an ear stretched to catch the celestial message which bids them, with iron-girded breasts and hoofs which barely touch the earth as they gallop, fly forward on a mission of God. Whither, then, are you speeding, O Russia of mine? Whither? Answer me. But no answer comes, only the weird sound of your colour-bells. Rent into a thousand shreds, the air roars past you, for you are overtaking the whole world, and shall one day force all nations, all empires, to stand aside, to give you way.
1841. End of Part 1, Chapter 11